continue this series I've been doing where I've been answering questions that my friend shared with me when I asked him to tell me what questions people who would not believe has had about the Bible and Christianity and, and things like that. And one of the questions that he asked me that kind of caught me off guard a little bit was this one. He asked, how can good triumph over evil when most good is done for selfish reasons. And I think that threw me off a little bit because I was raised in church and, and I personally was used to seeing things happen that were hurtful to people, things done for selfish reasons, all the while the people that were doing them claiming that they were good things or they were being done for righteous actions. And that was something that I've mostly experienced in the church by people who were not good followers of Christ. And so to hear that from someone that was asking it outside of that church context really stood out to me. And as we were talking about it a bit more, I realized that that's just as prevalent outside of the church as it is inside of the church, of people doing things not because they are actually the right thing to do or because people want to be selfless, but it really is done for selfish reasons and motivations. Things like giving money or food to somebody on the street so that you didn't feel guilty about just driving past them, or helping somebody move so that you can show what a good friend you were and let everybody know that you did this good and wonderful thing. And so, and so these things that are being done that objectively are good things to do, but being done so that somebody would feel better about themselves or so other people will like them more, and, and things that are still have that selfish motivation. And so he was asking me, with all the evil that is in the world and, and evil that is just terrible, awful things that happen, if this is the kind of good that we have, how can that kind of goodness triumph over such great evils. Now, the short answer to that question is that the good that's done needs to be selfless. It needs to not be selfish good that is done. That's the short, simple answer. But it's not always that easy, is it? Even in our own lives, it's not easy to truly be selfless. In fact, it goes against our very sinful nature of selfishness, of wanting things to be good for us. And so there's a passage of scripture that I think addresses this really well because not only does it show how good can triumph over evil, but it also shows us how we can act selflessly and to act in ways that are actually good instead of just this pretend good or this hollow goodness and how we can make that genuine in our own lives. So this passage is Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 21, and I'm going to take it verse by verse and, and really show what we can take away from each and every part of this. And if you've listened to some of my off-the-cuffs, it's going to be that same kind of format, except I actually have prepared the things that I want to talk about. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump in with verse 9. It says that love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, 
cling to what is good. So we're starting off by addressing our own heart, our own condition, the way that we look at things. And we're given the instruction to hate what is evil and cling to what is good, to not justify our own evil actions and not to ignore the good that is done from people we don't like, maybe, but to make sure that the love that we show to others is sincere, and that sincerity is very important. We have to begin with that sincere desire to love others, that sincere desire to do good to and for others, because those actions will only be worthwhile if it's being driven by the sincerity of our heart's condition. And so the first thing we have to do is make sure we're sincere so that our heart's condition can drive those good actions that are not selfish. So then verse 10, it says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. So verse 10 immediately shifts the focus of our love onto our relationships with other people. It's not just a love yourself or accept yourself kind of spiel. It really is saying if you're going to love, then it has to be in devotion to one another and honoring other people. This isn't just loving yourself. This is focusing on your relationship with other people. And in fact, as we deepen our relationship with other people, as we grow closer with them and to them, It will cause that love to pour out of us naturally in a very sincere way. And so that is so key. It's so important that it's being built on our relationships with other people. Verse 11 then says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And so verse 11 is now giving us this warning to make sure that when we are loving others, that we never allow that love to become hollow or to be apathetic. We never want to get to that place where we're just going through the motions of doing what we're supposed to be doing. We want to make sure that it is something that we are continually excited about, that we're not lacking in that zeal and that excitement and that joy that we get from those actions of love that we give to other people. Because if we get to a point where we're going through those actions, but our heart isn't in it anymore and our love becomes hollow, that is a serious issue. We never want to get to that point. And when we find ourselves there, something needs to be done about that. And the solution to that problem isn't to just stop loving people because, well, your heart's not in it anymore. The problem isn't the loving the people. The problem is that heart condition again. And so... Again, we go back to this idea of sincerity and we say, okay, there's something going on where I'm going through the actions, but it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I don't feel sincere in what I'm doing. I've lost that excitement and I need to refocus in on my relationship with these people and and make sure that I actually care about others and love other people because that needs to be the driving force. And And when we reach that point where our love becomes hollow, that's a warning sign that we need to re-examine ourselves and re-center ourselves, focusing in on other people rather than 
our own desires. So then verse 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. So up to this point, we've mainly been focusing on our own heart's condition. And here in verse 12, we begin to see the connection between the attitude of our hearts and our outward actions. That when we're displaying hope and encouraging other people, that it's coming out of an attitude of joy. That when we're met with actions of affliction, that our immediate response to that is an attitude of patience and knowing that it's only going to be painful for a time, that this affliction is only for a short time and we'll get through it and we're patient in that. And then also that attitude of faithfulness as we continue to pray day after day after day. And so we're seeing here in this verse that close connection between what we do and where it's coming from, and how we respond to things outside both what we do and what others do, that the things that we're doing are flowing out of that heart that's in a good, healthy condition, and then that good, healthy heart attitude and condition is able to help us from those actions coming towards us. So there's a strong connection here. There's not this disconnect of, oh, I can do one thing and feel another or believe one thing and act a different way. You can't have that disconnect. What you do and what you believe, what you think and what you say are all a part of who you are. And you cannot fool yourself into thinking that you can live these two disconnected lives going in two different directions or doing two different things thinking one thing and doing another, it's all interconnected. And it all comes back to what is the condition of your heart. Because if your heart is centered around yourself, then no matter what you do, even if they're good actions, it will all come back to serving yourself. And we have to be able to shift the center away from ourselves, shift our focus off of ourselves and onto God and onto others, so that then those selfless actions of love and goodness are pouring out from us rather than acting in contradiction to what's going on inside. And it's here that we begin to see this shift in this passage from our own internal condition to very practical steps of what we should be doing in our relationship with others. What kind of goodness should we be displaying? And we begin to see that as we go into verse 13. It says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So the first instruction that is given to us in acting out of this heart focused on others, is to share. Share with those who are in need. That's something we learn in preschool, in kindergarten, growing up. You need to share with others. And yet as we get older, it's something that seems to become more and more difficult for us to do, that we don't want to share with others. They haven't worked for it like we have. They don't deserve it like I do. These things are mine. 
I don't want to share. But that's the instruction that's being given here is to share with those who are in need. And so in that, not only do we need to be willing to share, but we also need to be discerning to make sure that there is a need. Because unfortunately, we do live in a world full of of people that will try to cheat you out of what you have and people that will lie. They will say anything as long as it benefits them and gets them what they want. And so we need to have both of those things in place in our life where we are willing to share and also being discerning to make sure that there is the need that we are sharing into and that we are helping those who are truly in need, not just those with the best sob story. But again, that we don't become callous and say, well, everybody's just out to get what I have. And so we hoard it, we hold on to it tightly, becoming unwilling to share. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Then in verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And here we see a call to what I like to call independent actions. And what I mean by that is we see here the instruction to bless those who persecute you. Now, it's very easy to bless someone who blesses you. It's easy to be nice to someone who is nice to you. That's not something that we need instruction to do. That's something that comes naturally to us. In fact, another passage of scripture, it talks about how even sinners are nice to people who are nice to them. So that's something that comes easily. But the thing that makes this stand out is that it's saying to bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse them. Even though they are not being kind to you, you should still be kind to them. And so what I mean by this as an independent action is not that it's being done disconnected from everyone and it's just something that's taking place in your your life alone. But what I mean by that is that It's an instruction that you have been given to do that is not dependent upon other people. It doesn't matter if people are blessing you or cursing you. You still have to bless them. You still have to wish for the best for them. That you're not hoping they get their comeuppance. You're hoping that they realize that what they're doing is destructive and that they recognize their sin and repent from that sin so that they can have a life blessed by God. You're hoping for the best outcome for them, not the worst, regardless of what they are doing to you. It's an independent action, actions that we are called to take that are not dependent upon the people around us. And then we have verse 15 that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And this is almost the opposite side of that coin of independent actions because we what we have being asked for here are to take sensitive actions. 
that when we see people who are rejoicing, that we're sensitive to what is taking place in their life, and we join in that rejoicing with them. And for those who are mourning, that we're not telling them, you should be rejoicing too, but instead we recognize that they are mourning, we're sensitive to their condition, and we meet them where they're at and mourn with them. And this is just as important as independent actions, just as important as things that we are called to do regardless of what other people are doing or regardless of the condition of other people's lives. These sensitive actions are also important, that we are meeting people where they're at and building that connection, that relationship with them by walking through with them what they're going through instead of telling them that they need to just not be in that situation or they need to handle it this way or that way and and really be callous towards them. Setting a bar for them that they need to aspire to instead of allowing God to do the work in their life. And so both of these things are important. Independent actions, this is what I do regardless of anyone else, and also sensitive actions, recognizing where people are at and meeting them there. So you might wonder, well, how do I know which is which? How do I know when to, you know, hold the line and hold that standard up and call people to a standard regardless of where they're at? And when do I allow myself to be sensitive and meet them where they're at? Well, if you're worried about that, let me give you this piece of advice. You don't have to figure it out on your own because the Holy Spirit will help you determine what course of action is the best for any situation. And God helps us discern what actions to take at what time. All we have to do is follow his guidance, because both of these things are important. Independent actions and sensitive actions. Now let's go on to verse 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So in this verse, we're told to live in harmony with each other, and we're also told how to do it, by not being proud. And so here we see that having humility leads to harmony. Now, humility does not mean cowardice. It doesn't mean that you're allowing people to abuse you or take advantage of you. Rather, humility means that you don't always have to get what you want. Things don't always have to turn out the way that you want them to. You don't have to make everybody be the way that you want them to be or else you're not going to associate with them. Humility is realizing that you're not perfect, that you make mistakes. And this truly does lead to a place of harmony because it makes us a lot more forgiving of other people's mistakes. And when we're able to take ourselves down a few notches, we're a lot more willing to meet people halfway and to listen to their side of the argument and to cut them 
the same kind of slack that God shows us. And that humility is really that first step in that, path, in that pathway to harmony. Then verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So here we're being told not just what we should be doing, but also what we should not be doing. That when we experience evil coming against us, that our reaction isn't to pay that evil back. It's not to get payback. It's not to get revenge. It's a warning against our own reactions. That as things happen against us, that we just react emotionally. Scripture is warning us against that. And so if we get to that place where we want to repay evil for evil, we have to instead focus on the do not. If we want to repay someone evil for evil, we have to do not repay anyone evil for evil. So that means that we choose inaction over reactions. Now that inaction should not be for an indefinite amount of time. That we don't just let that fear of doing something wrong paralyze us to that we never do anything, but rather we recognize that we want to repay evil for evil. We want to get that last word in. We want to point out what that other person did that we know about and we've been holding on to. That's what we want to do. And when we're in that state, we need to stop and set all of that aside until we are at a place where we can handle it rationally and righteously. We need to let that anger subside so that we can do what is right. Because the eyes of everyone are watching for what we do. And especially as Christ's representatives on earth, we need to make sure that we make the right choice. To show everyone what the love of God is really about. So rather than being reactionary rather than having that reaction we need to allow ourselves to be in a place of inaction until we reach that point where we know which action is the right one to take that we can act in a way that is loving and a way that is blessing those who curse us rather than just repaying evil for evil then verse 18, it says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's a call to peace, not just with our favorite people, but peace with everyone. And one of my favorite parts about this whole passage is that little phrase there that says, As far as it depends on you. Because that is such a recognition of the realities of the world that we live in. Because there are going to be times when you could do everything right and do everything within your power to try to establish peace between you and someone else. And they will still throw it back in your face. 
if there's going to be peace between two people, there's going to be at least two people involved. And unless they're both working towards peace, that peace is not going to be established. But again, this is where we come back to those independent actions. Just because the other person is not pursuing that peace doesn't mean that you stop trying to pursue that peace. But this is also really important to understand that we could do everything possible as far as it depends upon us to live at peace with someone and it still won't happen in the end because they are not desiring it. And that's really important for us to understand because that means that we can't judge ourselves based upon the end result of whether or not that peace was established. Because if we do, we'll find ourselves really guilting ourselves a lot and thinking, well, I must have messed something up because that peace wasn't established. And, and we can beat ourselves up and think of ourselves as doing a terrible job following Christ because that peace wasn't established. And we have to understand that our obedience is separate from what the end result was. That just because that peace wasn't established doesn't automatically mean that you were disobedient. And so rather than saying, well, whether was, was the peace established or not, that instead we're saying, did I do everything that was possible as far as it depended upon me to try to establish that peace? That's the real question. Were we obedient to that command? And so now, as we've gone through all of this, we finally begin to enter the section where we see how all of this good stuff all of this blessing those who curse us, all of those sincerely loving other people and focusing on our relationships with them, how does that triumph over evil? It begins in verse 19. It says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So what we're seeing here is a change in the dynamic, and it doesn't begin with a change on the enemy's side, if we want to use that term, but rather a change in our own understanding. And that's the first place where change needs to take place. And the understanding that we need to have for this change to begin to take place is to realize that revenge is not for us to take. It's for God to take. And this is important because the war that evil is raging on this world is primarily against God. The devil and his angels stand against God and all of his goodness. In a sense, we're just kind of caught up in the crossfire. That that evil is attacking us because we are God's creation. Evil's war is with God. And because of that, the burden of punishing evil is not upon us. That's God's responsibility. And he says, don't place on yourself that burden 
of thinking you have to make right everything that has been done wrong. Revenge is the Lord's. And what we're being called to do is to deal with our own evil. That's where the battle first and primarily needs to take place in our life, is within our own heart. And let God take care of the rest. In verse 20 it then says, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So the instruction here as a follow-up to don't take revenge, let God have the revenge, the follow-up then is, this is what you do. Be nice to them, bless them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And it says that in doing this, we will heap burning coals on this on their head. In other words, it's not going to be pleasant for them. It's going to be uncomfortable. And this is something that we can see and understand that when evil is met with loving action in return, it gets very uncomfortable for that evil force. Now, I'm not just saying a passive response, right? Don't roll over and play dead. A bully likes to go after the weak link. But if you can meet that evil with loving action in return, it's going to be very hard, or at least very uncomfortable, for that person to continue to show evil to someone who only shows them love in return. Very uncomfortable. That is not what they are used to. And if there's anything that we can count on when it comes to selfish people who do evil things, it's that they place a high value on their own comfort. And the more uncomfortable you can make them, the less they'll like it. So when they're hungry, feed them. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And you'll be burning, you'll you'll be heaping burning coals on their head. You will drive them insane. They won't like it. And they won't continue in it. And that's where we get to this final verse that then says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you experience that evil, do not repay that evil with evil. Evil likes to feed off of itself. And if you repay evil with evil, you're just going to be feeding that evil, hurtful cycle, and it's just going to get worse and worse. Overcome evil with good. Show the same love that God showed you when you despised him and rebuked him, and hated him, and yet he still loved you, show that same kind of love to others. So, the answer remains the same. How does good overcome evil? When it's actually good. When it's selfless. When it's sincerely loving. And that cannot happen on our own. 
true goodness is not found through the nature of mankind. In fact, I want to leave us with this passage in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. We are not good. We are not selfless. We are selfish. We are conniving. We like our comfort. We want to fulfill our desires. And the only way that evil can be overcome, and not just overcome, but also changed, that people who were evil become good, that people who were thought to be hopeless become rescued. It's the power of forgiveness and redemption. And that power to overcome and change evil comes when we stop basing our idea of what's good on our own desires and instead allow it to be God working through us. Because if we can do that, then the good that is being done through us is not going to be done for selfish reasons. And it is only the true goodness of God that will overcome the evil that is in this world. If by no other way than making them so uncomfortable because that evil is not being fed with more evil. It's being fed with love. And it's very, very hard to hate someone who shows you nothing but love. God's good triumphs over the darkest of evil. And that is today's Sermon in the Pocket. As always, if you have any comments or questions for me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me either through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page, or you can email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And as always, I encourage you to share these messages with other people to help get the word out there. But until next time, I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.